0: Hey guys, you're listening to the Mormon Theories Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Hinckley. Hey, my guest today is Lance Weaver from mormonuniversalism.com. Man, we talked about so many cool topics, so many things I never considered before. I found his website by chance about a year ago, and ever since I've been dying to sit down and pick his brain about the things that he wrote about. Um, and this was my chance. It was an honor to sit down with him. Um, so in, in this podcast, we talk about some of his research into the, the pitfalls of radiocarbon dating. Um, we talk about his theory on Book of Mormon geography and archaeology, how maybe some of the dates in the Book of Mormon itself are a little off. Um, then we talked about universalism, the idea that all people, regardless of religion, will be saved and how Mormon scriptures actually teach this, probably. Um, we also talked about God revealing himself and speaking to non-LDS prophets. That was really cool. Um, that got us talking about some channeled texts. Um, we do talk about uh, that term quite a bit in the podcast, or at least a couple times. And um, if you don't know what that is, a, a channeled text is, is where, it's where a person on earth becomes a channel for some higher power and through that channel produces a work of literature that that person themselves probably couldn't have produced otherwise um some examples of that are the book of mormon and the dnc those are both considered by some to be channel texts all right joseph smith couldn't make the book of mormon by himself right but through if he was acting like as a channel he could um so that was really cool uh, we also talk about Lance's theory on reincarnation and the the degrees of glory. Um, very interesting. Um, and we also, we uh, we finished the podcast talking about a channel text called The Book of Ben Catherine. Now, this was probably one of my favorite parts of the podcast. Um, the Book of Ben Catherine is so interesting, and Lance is an expert on it. He says he's read it hundreds of times. Um, you can read about it on his website the book of ben catherine is purported to have been produced from a guy in israel known as Yochanan ben catherine hopefully i said that right um it's an insanely intricate text riddled with references to isaiah and the old testament and it foretells some pretty gnarly things in the last days possibly uh it foretells it foretold of the pandemic even so you should definitely check that out um Yeah, so that's what we talked about. As always, uh, you can check out the show notes at mormontheories.wordpress.com and I would suggest that you do that because I've got links to a lot of the articles that Lance and I talked about in the interview. Um, And as you listen, please know that the views of my guests on the podcast do not necessarily reflect my own beliefs or the official doctrine of any denomination, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so with that, guys... Enjoy the show. Okay. Hey, welcome to the the Mormon Theories Podcast. Um, I'm Ryan Hinckley, and I'm the host. I'm here with Lance Weaver, my guest. I'm super excited to talk to him. Um, I ended up stumbling upon his website a while back and found some really interesting stuff, and we're going to talk about a lot of that today. How are you doing, Lance?
1: Yeah, I'm doing Good.
0: Good. Good. Thanks for thanks for doing this again. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah. So your website is called Mormon Universalism. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It actually has multiple URLs that are constantly changing, but one of them is that.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: The other one's Mormon Reformation. So.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Mormon Reformation. Cool. Um, and so, the what the one question I've been dying to ask you is I. I actually found your blog, your website, um, while I was looking up stuff about the Jaredites, like I, I had this idea, like maybe they're older than, than we think they are. Maybe it wasn't just like 2300 BC, but maybe older. And then I found your website saying something like 14,000 BC. And so I wanted to know like why you came to that conclusion and what your thoughts on that were.
1: Um, right. Yeah. So it's, it's not necessarily that, that I would say that the Jaredites um, date 14,000 BC, but that aspects of their society date to that. And so my my whole thesis of that is that radiocarbon dates um, are not as predictably skewed as um, we currently believe, right? So I mean, this takes, this takes a lot of background as part of the reason why I became a geologist in the first place really to like understand um, radiometric dating but when it comes to radiocarbon dates right they're pretty much it's it's created by um, right cosmic rays for the most part like coming uh, into the upper atmosphere and converting nitrogen to carbon-14 right so because it's in the upper atmosphere it's largely dependent upon the earth's um, electromagnetic field like that is what kind of dictates the level of uh, kind of cosmic bombardment we get because the, the Earth's magnetic field deflects, you know, a lot of that um, really high frequency energy that comes from the sun. So anyway, so if you have a stronger electromagnetic field, then you have less of those entering the Earth's atmosphere, and so you have less radiocarbon being created. And if you have if you have a, a less strong, like a weaker electromagnetic field, it's gonna let more in. Right. Okay, and so that and that's that's like really no well known assumptions. This is known news like all, all scientists understand that. Um, and, and they understand that the electromagnetic field is not constant, right? But what they don't fully um, know is like how it's fluctuated and exactly when it's fluctuated, right? So what they do is they try and use like dendrochronology um, or like uranium, thorium dating. They use other dating systems to try and cross-check their radiocarbon dates mm. to try and create what what's called um, a correlation curve right and there's several of those right now but there's kind of one that's more agreed upon than others and they've used these other dating methods to kind of create like something that says hey well if let's say your radiocarbon date you send this to the lab and it comes back with a date that says that it's like 9,000 years old well then use our correlation curve and you'll see that that's actually you know too young and it should be 400 years older than that because we know that the Electromagnetic field and there's other there's other electromagnetic fields only one thing that can kind of pollute radiocarbon dates right and all these are, assumptions are kind of known and they try and correct for them. Like the marine reservoir effect and there's there's like even terrestrial lake effects there's um, soil effects if they're high in calcium carbonate. So anyway, they try and they try and correct the date. Okay, this is my my thesis though. The, these cross checking methods that they've used specifically like radi- uh, dendrochronology and uranium thorium, they're not accurate either, right? They're using, like maybe, I think dendrochronology is pretty trustworthy probably for the last 2000 years, but as soon as you start getting into older dates, then you're you're using like a really tenuous method to try and match trees or finding trees, right? And trying to match the pattern of tree rings on them and supposing that they create like this continual record. I say that's wrong, right? And not only that, it's using circular reasoning. Because usually they're using radiocarbon dating to like backcheck the thing they're using to backcheck radiocarbon dating. They're totally doing circular reasoning. Yeah. So, so my my thesis, what I believe really strongly, and I think I have a good amount of evidence for it, but definitely not enough to ever be like um, to to like overturn the (laughs) the general consensus of scientific thought, um, is that they're pretty they're pretty off. And not only that, the curve the curve is highly irregular. So I think that some things that date to like the end of the ice age, let's say like 9000 BC actually happened like 2000 BC. Mm -hmm. Right. And it it goes like this and then maybe, and then it'll go and maybe be more accurate. And then maybe 2000 years later, you'll get another thing. And it dates to like just about 12,000 BC too, or 12,000 BP, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but it actually happened like, um, years ago. So you just have this like really irregular, Curve where their their correlation curve is basically linear, but just kind of these little deviations, you know, like 400 years at the most. I think there might be a thousand year deviation in one of them. But it's like my my thesis is no, like this curve should go like this, and there are things that are off by like 10,000 years, especially as you get older. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that like turned me on the strong that um like uh, middle eastern uh prehistory like repeats itself completely huh. um in just really crazy ways and this and this would take an, an hour in and of itself to kind of get into the, the depth of this right but so i think personally that it's really obvious um that the ramsian the dynasty the 19th dynasty of egypt 18th 19th dynasty of egypt um and the ramses right are yeah. actually the Ptolemies Okay. And I mean, and that's, that's huge. Like, I don't know if you know much about the Ptolemies or the oh. Ramses, but to make that oh. assertion is enormous. Yeah. Right. The Ramsian dynasty is like the most renowned famous um, aspect of Egyptology. It's, it's, it's like right before King Tut, like all the, the monuments, I mean, Ramses the was like the most prolific builder in all of Egyptian history. Like so many monuments and, and architectural um, accomplishments were done by him. And and who is who's like the number two? Who's the second most prolific builder? Ptolemy the first, right? Like you you go through and they each have this this dynasty that goes like Ramses the first all the way to like Ramses the like 14th, and it's the same with the Tolemies. You got like Ptolemy the first to like Ptolemy the 14th, right? But one of them is historically dated. The Ptolemies we know like their dynasty lasted from you know just before the time of Christ to like um, I don't know 4. 450, I'd have to look my dates because I haven't looked at this stuff in a while, but some, something like that, 450 BC um, or 400 BC. Mm-hmm. But the um, the Ramsians, right, they're radiocarbon dated. And not only that, before they were radiocarbon dated, they were dated by um, using kind of king lists that themselves are just a mess. Yeah. Okay. And these king, these king lists are also, they're, they're also based on faulty information. Because during the Persian Empire, especially, like there was a serious um, battle in in Egypt, um, sorry, in the the Middle East in general, where all these different authors were trying to claim their culture was the oldest. Mm -hmm. Right, and that lasted all the way up to the time of Christ. In fact, even, um, uh, oh, how come I just forgot who we all reference for um, Israeli history, right? Josephus? Josephus, right. So even Josephus is part of this. Like when he's writing on the antiquity of the Jews, Uh, he's like got this same chip on his shoulder where he's trying to prove to to the world around him, like, no, the Jews are the oldest, right? He's like, our history is ancient and very cohesive. Well, Manetho and a lot of these other guys, they were doing the same thing. They're like, they're all trying to prove that their culture is like the oldest, because that kind of gives them preeminence, right? Mm -hmm. And it just so happens Right in the way that I look at at the research, anyway, that kind of the dates that were given to Ramses kind of they're, they're still like we're like 600 years off, but they kind of correlated with these faulty dates from the king lists, and so then they thought, oh hey, well look, radiocarbon dating is working. It's working great, and so you know that was like one of uh, Libby's, who's who's kind of the father of radiocarbon dating. First things like look these these Egyptian dates which we think are really trustworthy are matching my radiocarbon dates. And so radiocarbon dating is, is viable. It works. It totally works. Now since then most Egyptologists like they don't use radiocarbon dating a lot, right? It like fell out of disfavor because they knew it was off. But they still think they still think it's more like off by like fifty years, you know, which sure. is a really significant important amount of time to them. But I say, no, it's off by like a thousand years, because you're dating the Ramseyan di- dynasty to like eleven hundred BC but it's the Ptolemies. Like these guys are the Ptolemies. Like why, why does it pass any, cross anyone's mind that like the and dynasty, they haven't found a single mummy, right? Like from, from the dynastic rulers, they don't know where Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second, Ptolemy the third, none of them. We, we don't know where any of them are. And it's like, well, why? Because we have so many records. We know that it was such a huge thing that these Greek rulers, you know, were massive and they were incredible builders, but we can't find any of their like crypts why because what well, we have we found them all we just called them ramsian and and the rams ones were called ramses in the first place because they were trying to correlate it with the bible and it's like it, the whole middle eastern archaeological system is so messed up all because the beginning archaeologists were tra- trying to correlate it with the bible and they saw these huge monuments and like oh they look so ancient this must be the people who were around when moses left egypt and so they're like yeah they're, and that came to their mind and so they built this huge narrative and we still believe it today right And and so my like in a lot of my research, it's like the entire system that we've built our our intellectual framework on is wrong. And everyone is just believing it. And they're all building on this framework that the entire foundation is false, like just as bad as the heliocentric or the geocentric model. Like we're all just like following being like, yeah, there is the center of the universe. And no one is like looking outside the box to be like, no, the, the foundation is wrong. Like we we're totally off. And, and anyway, so, so radiocarbon dating is just one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But but the ice age is another part that, that I could go off on because it's one of the things that's totally I think led us. <laughs> it's anyway, it's so big it's hard for me to like it's hard for me to talk intellectually to to scholars about it. Yeah. Because what I'm because of what I'm saying basically is as big as as like Galileo and Copernicus coming and saying, like, no, the sun is the center of the solar system, not the earth. Right. And then being like, no, no. I mean, that's common knowledge. We all know the foundation of astronomy is that the earth is the center. I'm saying, like, no, it's that big, like we are that wrong. And no one can see it. And it's all because of, first of all, uh, trusting a little too much in uniformitarianism. And I'm I'm a uniformitarianist, like as a geologist, obviously, but mm-hmm. but we 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 follow a, a, a version of uniformitarianism. That is too extreme, because there have been massive changes, and yeah. most of them had to do with your Earth's electromagnetic field and solar output, um, and and the ice ages are. Com- anyway, that's something that's so, Like, you know.
0: So with the those changes in the electromagnetic field, is that like connected with uh, the changing of the North Pole? Because you know it like changes precession or whatever it's called. Is that? or am my okay, way yeah. off i'm sorry
1: <laughs> no no there's a lot there's there's a huge relationship there okay. okay yeah so like um first of all there's a there's a difference between the obviously the what north pole right yeah. that, that has to do with the like the geomagnetic it's the same thing so electromagnetic field is kind of what lets us know which way is north right so there is really a north pole that um is the the, the northern section where all the geomagnetic you know lines head into the north pole and that migrates over time. Okay. Right. And and it's it's like moved massively just in the last 20 years. And so north has moved. But when I but when I talk about um the ice age, and I don't know if I want to even get into that right now <laughs> cuz I have to I have to drop a bomb when it comes to that. <laughs> and and I I hate to go to make such a huge statement, yeah. which is that the ice age actually was not caused by precession. Um, Or inclination or any of the three Milankovitch cycle aspects of the the ice age was actually the result of a Of a completely different geographic North Pole The North Pole was over Greenland during Uh, the ice age and that caused And that caused a global an ice cap that extended all the way to New York and Chicago Mm -hmm. and all the way into Germany and you know, southern England. But it's also and I I have to do a screen share because if I show, like I haven't shown a single person this, this application that I built without them being like, holy crap, you're right. Right. So what what it is is that if you look on a globe at where the ice sheet was, where yeah. the actual you know continental ice caps were during the Pleistocene ice age, they formed like this perfect circle with Greenland at its center. And places like northern Alaska, like the Yukon, most of Alaska, really, all of non-mountainous Alaska, and pretty much all of Siberia, non-mountainous Siberia, there are mountain glaciers, but all of non-mountainous Siberia was not glaciated during the Pleistocene. And if you see that on a map, it, it blows your mind because you're like, what? How, weird. how could there have been 10,000 feet of ice in Chicago? Yeah. Like thirty five. 40 degrees south of the current North Pole, how could there have been 10,000 feet of ice there and no ice in Siberia, right, and like, and cur- current, and I mean, I'm, I'm a geologist, I, to- I really understand, I, this, so I'm glossing over this, because if someone was like a, a glaciologist or like a geologist, we'd be having like a far deeper conversation about this, but their, like their explanations typically are like, well, there was like these Hadley cells that, they made it so that Siberia was like a desert, you know, I mean, it just had no precipitation. And so because there was no precipitation and no, no ice accumulated. And I say, well, that's that's bull crap. That explanation is such bull crap. You're just coming up with all these mental gymnastics to explain the phenomenon. Yeah. Because you look at that exact same thing happens in the center of Antarctica today, like the center of Antarctica is a desert, like it gets like less than two centimeters of snow a year. And yet it still has 10,000 feet of ice. Why? Because it, it doesn't matter. Even if you only get two centimeters a year over thousands of years, that's gonna stack up if there's no yeah. melting. So the argument that it's like that Siberia went thousands and thousands of years within this incredibly cold climate, you know, but yet it didn't accumulate a polar ice cap. But but like central the central Canadian shield did. Anyway, the, the whole argument, it's it's bonkers, right? And and the explanations they come up with the oceanic currents and that are are bonkers too. When the, the the explanation is so obvious when you look at it like on a three D globe. Yeah. Like if I could screen share I could show you, but I don't think
0: okay. you can try. I maybe try to do it and then like can... uh... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not good at this program, but we can try.
1: Yeah, I know how to do it on like on Google Meet, but I don't, I don't know how you Oh there it is. No, I found it like this. Yeah. Go okay, ahead. Let me, let me see if I can open it really quick first um just give me one second here oh you're good yeah like i built this 3d i mean i I love maps so it's kind of what i do for work is build all these um mapping applications Mm. so then i built this one kind of showing the ice age and i think it makes it like Anyway, once you see it, then it it kind of makes it come alive as far as like, oh, yeah, wow, that's kind of an interesting configuration. Oh, look, it says your host disabled participant screen
0: sharing. Oh, no.
1: (laughs) Like, if you look down by the pause, stop recording and chat and all that, there's a button that says screen share.
0: Okay, hang on. I think I figured it out. Can you do it now? Yeah, there it is right there. Okay. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) All right. Okay, so it says I'm sharing. Yeah. So can you see it? Yes. <laughs> okay. So this this right here, like I made these polygons, and these polygons um, are really they're they're pretty accurate as far as like the current scientific consensus of where the Pleistocene um, glacial ice fields la- laid. Okay. And so I mean, you had you had huge mountain glaciers, right? Like, can you see my mouse too? Yes. So you had huge mountain glaciers in the Rockies, obviously, mm-hmm. right? And it extended all the way down, like um even into yellowstone and stuff and, and i mean utah right i mean you had glaciers and b- big and little continent canyon yeah. but as far as the actual continental ice sheets right this this was their extent you can see like the canadian shield greenland was in the center and then you've got like the scandian and the england ice sheet right and then finno Scandian, scandinavian i think they call it um and then the Kara one over here. Anyway, it's like, it's this perfect circle almost. And this, so this white circle you can see, that's kind of what I've delineated as, I think that was basically the
0: Arctic Circle. Okay. And, and then that, that like, little circle in Greenland is the the magnetic North Pole?
1: Well, yeah, the
0: geographic North oh, Pole. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah,
1: who okay. knows where the magnetic North Pole is? It's always like going all over the place. Oh, okay,
0: but... yeah, sorry.
1: <laughs> but yeah, the, and and that, like that, opens up a topic, right? Because we don't really know where the geographic North Pole ever was. There's not a lot of evidence other than an ice sheet mm-hmm. to, for us to figure out where the geographic North Pole is because what is preserved in sediments, which, what geologists use um, to track kind of the, the apparent North Pole is the geomagnetic North Pole. Right. So we, we look for like magnetic field imprints, right? in sediments yeah. and rocks. And, and then we suppose that the geographic North Pole was somewhere nearby. Because okay. we make the assumption that the geographic and the magnetic North Pole are probably usually within 10 degrees of each other, even though that that assumption isn't holding very true right now, right? <laughs> because the magnetic <laughs> North Pole is like going all over the place. But uh, but so, I, we could at least say it's within 20 degrees. So
0: yeah. So how does the how does the geographic North Pole move then? Because isn't okay. it? Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Uh, I, it, it's not easy, right? And I think people people pointed this out, like back when, and it was usually creationists, and so that's one of the reasons why it was always um, dismissed, because it's like when you got like huge catastrophists and creationists, who, whose other science is kind of like so bad that people don't believe it, um, and they're the ones pointing this out. Then it's like a, a no one's going to take it seriously, right? right? But but there were people who pointed this out and were like, look at this. I mean, it looks like things were different, but then the question always was, well, what? What changed the geographic North Pole, like what on earth could do something like that. And any explanation for that back when this was part of the, you know, discussion in, in academia, maybe back in the you know 40s to the 60s. It, it just like reached too much of creationism and catastrophism to really take serious and no one, no one came up with a great explanation. Um, since then, though, right, like, I think things really started to change with um, the KT, the chicks love crater that it caused the dinosaur extinction right like really before that theory became mainstream even even something like a, a meteorite impact that could cause a major extinction was like too too catastrophist like it wasn't uniformitarianist mm. enough
0: right
1: um, and and that was like that was kind of like a weird story how that even got popularized was um like the alvarez nobel prize winner guy his son he, anyway had a bunch of money and he started like paying hollywood and and all these shows and books to kind of like print th- this idea of his, and then it caught on and became mainstream. And now everyone thinks, yeah, I mean, the dinosaurs died from a meteor impact, and and now there's a lot more people looking at that, being like, well, maybe that's a good explanation for even like the younger Dryas, which is like a a period of kind of like a, a mini ice a, age after the ice age ended. So, but that's that's a good theory that maybe a huge meteor impact could change the geographic North Pole. But what what doesn't make sense in my mind. Right? What you have to explain is that we have, like, we do have in our ice cores, what seem like clear evidence, and and soil um, records kind of confirm it, that the ice ages came and went. Right. Right. So they, the, you you had like periods of even places that were nowhere near the pole. It got cold and then it got warm. It got cold and then it got warm. And it and it almost seems to follow some kind of periodicity, even though it's not like so great, like the Milankovitch cycles might try and lead you to believe. So then it has to be something like periodic, like something regular. So that that's why I I, I wouldn't want to ever be so bold or like arrogant to try and be like, well, this is what did it, right? I think like a scientific consensus should probably be working on this problem and yeah. come up with that as well. But I think it probably has something to do um, with with some kind of wave. This is the only thing I can think of anyway. Emanating out from the galactic core. And I mean, this is a huge topic, but I think there's probably, this is my thought. Mm-hmm. That in the same way you've got like this, um, I can't remember what it's called, but in our solar system, you know, there's like a, a plane, basically, an electromagnetic plane between the north and south pole and planets cross it. I think there's something like that in the galaxy itself, that when our solar system crosses it, it it does something like excites our sun and excites the planets and, and maybe moves them and that there's something like that seems like a more valid possibility for like period, a periodicity in extinctions and a periodicity in in huge lava um, flows, hmm. traps you know, that they come that seem to happen periodically in the ge- geologic record and as well as the ice age, that like you've got something that's controlled by massive maybe gravity waves um, emanating out from, from the center of the Milky Way galaxy, right? At Sagittarius A and Sagittarius. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, some something is doing it, and it's making it like periodically our Earth like shifts, almost like on a, on a clock.
0: Yeah, interesting. Anyway,
1: I, I have I have lots of other thoughts on that, but yeah. Oh one other thing I'd show you here really quick is that like yeah, go put ahead. An, put Antarctica.
0: Oh. <laughs>
1: so that's Antarctica superimposed on the ancient um, ice cap. Yeah. And this red line is kind of the extent of the winter sea ice okay which i think if there was land that's probably about the extent that the the glacier the south pole um ice cap its largest extent so i think i find it interesting that the pleistocene ice cap was basically the exact same size as antarctica's maximum ice um, coverage in the winter with sea ice that is cool which leads me to believe that things weren't all that much colder during the ice age at all. It really, it was just just a separate north pole. Yeah, and that's why Siberia was never really glaciated.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. Anyway, yeah, that's that.
0: That's cool. So, real quick on that, I was just trying to to visualize this. So, if the geographic north pole is in Antarctica or in Greenland, does that mean that, like the Like, does that mean that the earth is kind of tilted in a different way? Like, I'm trying to visualize that. Yeah. Okay.
1: And so it could mean, it could mean, like right now the earth is tilted, what, 23 and a half degrees? Yeah. On its axis. So maybe it wasn't 23 and a half degrees. Maybe it was something a little different. But at any rate, it could have still been 23 degrees. It could have been about the same. It's just that now Greenland was from the, the North Star, right? Okay. Instead, instead of our current North Pole. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. And then that would have affected the South Pole too, right? Instead of the um, the South Pole being right in the middle of Antarctica, it would be like out here in the edge, which probably means like, so this is testable, like my theory would be really testable because if we got a lot of really good data in separate parts of Antarctica, like we know that it, it was glaciated a lot earlier than Greenland, but we ought to be able to find One part, the part of Greenland that would have been like kind of ice free or more ice free during the ice age should have thinner and younger ice or should have showed a lot more melting during those periods. Yeah. And anyway, my, my thought is that no one has really looked for that yet. And so it does not really show up in the way that we date things and we're always using radiocarbon dating to try and like um, date our ice cores. And so Mm -hmm. we've got that same circular reasoning going on.
0: Yeah, that's cool cool well yeah thanks for sharing that um, any so I want to ask you about your website and like how it came about and stuff but is uh, is there anything more on the, the radiocarbon stuff you want to talk about
1: um, I, get, I guess maybe bringing that around to the Book of Mormon yeah so then I guess why that's relevant is that in my mind So I have a model to the Book of Mormon, right? That I think is right, Um, but that's pretty meaningless because everyone thinks their Book of Mormon model is right, (laughs) Um, which which is almost frustrating to me. Like I read, I read like so many people's models, and they all think they're so right that it just makes me want to like give up and be like, well, they're because I I think they're all crazy, and I'm like, well, mine, is mine that bad? Because theirs are bad. they're really they're really bad <laughs> i mean like the one the ones like people who believe believe it was in malaysia or yeah, believe it was in like, Bok, california uh-huh. or think it was in like um Columbia, you know and, and ecuador anyway i just wonder if they even read the book of mormon ever <laughs> it blows my mind but so i i think my model like has i mean i'm gonna I'm preface with this let's say this if, if it weren't for this model that I think like kind of came to me with a flood and, and my brother as well, like I wouldn't believe that the Book of Mormon was literal anymore. I really wouldn't. And 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 that and that's really saying something to me because like I had, when I when I read the Book of Mormon in high school, I mean, I had unbelievable like metaphysical experiences with it, right? Like people talk about the burning heart experience, like I'd call it like a Kundalini experience because it's kind of similar to like what other cultures, experience, you know, with like really strong metaphysical manifestations that just make your whole body feel like it's on fire. Like I had that with the book of Mormon, like full on, Uh, like in high school. Like I, I mean, I felt like I was having a heart attack on two different occasions when I read it. It was so powerful. I mean, so, and, and I, I took that to, to mean that the book of Mormon was true when I read it, because that's like what our leaders kind of say. I'm not sure that I would ascribe it to that now, but now I would say that, something in that book at least like spiritually affected me to such an extent that it just completely like i'm not sure what endocrine gland it is that that rules that because it's like it's physical right i mean i i I explain that experience often like saying that it's like a spiritual orgasm (laughs) like there's no there's no doubting right that that I can, I can, sorry, oh, you're good. <laughs> and, and hopefully this isn't like too not PG, but an orgasm <laughs> is caused by a biological process, right? Right. If there's literally something that is opening up some of your endocrine glands to flood your body with certain hormones that did give you a sensation that is unmistakable, mm-hmm. right? Well, this like this Kundalini type experience, is like some call it like the burning heart, the burning serpent, you know, all, there's all these terms in different cultures. Like it literally is a chemical that floods your body and it's in your heart. Right. You know, exactly kind of where it's emanating from Mm -hmm. and it just, it blows you away. Right. And it makes you feel connected to like the universe. And I mean, it's, I'm sure there's drugs that probably give you that same sensation because they open those exact same hormones. Uh, I mean, this was like in high school from reading a book. Yeah. So it's like, there's something really powerful about that book. Um, but even still, the the most of the current models out there are so poor and so like contrary to each other that I don't I don't think I could still like scientifically like the I guess the scientist in me couldn't see it as as true. It would make probably turn it into kind of something metaphorical. Okay. Right. Or spiritual. But but my model like I it there's so many things that match so well right and and what we're talking about with the ice age is just one of them because for instance like in, in ether when it talks about how that the elephant it talks about this big list of animals that were useful for the food of man mm-hmm. right and then it says more particularly useful were the elephants and the and kumas yeah so then it's like okay well us it's, it's saying that they ate these big animals and that, and that some of them are extinct so they don't even have names now but they were eating it and then it says that there was a dearth and the, in the dearth, all the animals fled south. And it says there was no rain upon the face of the land. Right? And so all the animals leave, and then it says that the people followed the animals and ate them all. Right? right. Like, so basically it's saying what archeologists already have found with the Clovis, that they ate mammoths, that their main food staple, because it says more particularly useful for man were the elephants, the the So their yeah. main food staple was the, the mammoths and probably the woolly rhinoceros, right? And maybe the, um, anyway, they had a couple of those animals that Giant were like main food staples, and that there was a huge change in the, in the climate, like the end of an ice age, and that all these animals took off because the climate shifted so radically and uh-huh. they hunted them to extinction, right? Well, that's exactly what archaeologists have found, but they date it to 9000 BC. And so then, when, when a Mormon person tries to correlate with the Book of Mormon, they go, "All oh, these dates don't match." Yeah, so that's that's not that's not proof, right? And and so there's one after another of things like that, right? And that that for two reasons, um, current Mormon scholars who try and correlate the Book of Mormon, they overlook them all. And one is dating, right? Because the dates don't match, they dismiss it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the narrow neck. And, and I'll get into that later. I think yeah. there's a huge misunderstanding in the internet. I think when you, once you understand those two things, right, then it's like you get so many correlations that it's kind of like, whoa, hey, that's totally crazy. So and here's my second example. The second one would be, well, the Book of Mormon teaches that, that there was like two huge major cultures, right? right. And the, the Southern culture basically um, chased the Northern culture across the continent there's no doubt that like early pro- prophets early readers and the most like you're just going to assign the most obvious um take take the book for its word it kind of suggests a continental model right i mean when it's always talking about the whole face of the land and the north sea and the south sea, it seems like it's suggesting a continental model
0: yeah
1: but so and then it's saying that the, the southern culture chased the northern culture you know over a period of 45 years and then exterminated them so we should see that in archaeology right we should see like entire cultures collapsing in a line all the way to upstate new york okay okay so that is in the archaeology that is absolutely in the archaeology but no book of mormon scholar will ever be like oh yeah that's in the archaeology why because the dates don't match right the dates totally don't match yeah okay like archaeologists know that the maya collapsed 800 A.D. Well, that's after Book of Mormon times, right? So that's no match. <laughs> then Teotihuacan collapsed shortly after, you know, 900, 800 to 1000 A.D. Teotihuacan culture, which is the Mexican Highland culture, totally collapsed,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Teotihuacan was um, abandoned. After that, the Chichimec lands all the way up west Mexico, the exact same thing. They completely collapse, and in that case, there is like bodies everywhere, right? Alta Vista, like there's like four different ruins in there where they just find so many skeletons and so much evidence of warfare, right? And so, and then those areas were abandoned. Shortly after that, around, you know, 1150 AD to maybe 1250 AD, the Anasazi lands collapse. Anasazi um, culture collapses, right? You have the Chacoan phenomenon before that where it just explodes. Like all of a sudden you have this influx of so many people that they're building great houses like everywhere. Like in radiocarbon years, you've got this like 300 year period where the population just explodes. And who knows where these people are coming from, but they are building hundreds of great houses all around Arizona, New Mexico, even into Utah a little bit, Colorado, you know, Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon, um, Casas Grandes Paquime in, in northern Mexico That's a huge one. These massive great houses. I mean, some of them are like five stories tall, right? 2,000 rooms. They have opened up a huge trade network where they're, they're trading macaws and all these birds and, and fine wares from West Mexico and even all the way down to the Yucatan up in, they're probably really stripping the, the Rocky Mountains, Colorado Rocky Mountains, it's resources too and sending them South, but the main evidence is of stuff coming North, right? But then that society collapses, right? About 1150, 1200 AD radiocarbon dating. Uh-huh. And then after that, you've got Coquia, right? And all the Mississippian cultures, and then they collapse right? And they collapsed later, right? Some, some of their dates are like radiocarbon years are like 1400 AD, but really, I think Koki is closer to like 1250 or something like that, just right after um, Chaco. So then that culture collapses. Well, that matches perfectly with the Book of Mormon. Like you've got almost every major culture on the entire continent sequentially collapsing, just like the Book of Mormon said, but no Book of Mormon scholar is ever going to like stick his neck out and be like, Hey, that's a crazy coincidence i'm gonna instead go oh yeah no, no, that's that's all after the book of mormon book of Mormon ends at 450 we all believe in radiocarbon dating right right like, yeah that that's, has nothing to do with the book of mormon but it's like well well what what if it does because it matches perfectly with this and frankly like the book of mormon offers a better story than the one that archaeologists have right like i mean who, who's gonna believe that drought ended the anasazi well it's not called anasazi anymore it's called like ancient Puebloan because that's Anastasia is kind of like drag to return. So we'll just call it the ancient Puebloan culture. I'm talking about the Anastasia, the right, four-corner region. Yeah. Like who's going to believe that drought destroyed that culture? Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. That's so stupid. <laughs> I'm sure you could believe it for Chaco, because it's kind of like gotten away from the rivers. But if there is a drought, everyone's just going to move next to the Animas River, you know, the San Juan, like there's so much water in those in those areas. They could move to where there was water.
0: Yeah.
1: Like the idea that it's like the culture collapsed because of drought, I think is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And not only that, like h- half of the buildings are all burnt out. And so like, I remember reading like a National Geographic once where, where they're like saying, um, they're saying like the the Anasazi's worst enemy was their own fire pit. Because we find that so many of their buildings are burnt out and we think that they ceremonially like burnt their buildings before they left. You know, and even there's food on the table. Sometimes it's like, and that was ceremonial. They left it there. That's, that's this Why not look at the more obvious reason that like some of these new books like Mancorn and anyway, warfare in the the Anastasi, it's more obvious. Like there was was a huge war, right? And the thing collapsed because of warfare and they were cannibalizing each other and doing all sorts of crazy, exactly like the book says, right? I mean, that's another match. Like if you were going to, if you're going to pick any area in all of North America and say, well, where was cannibalism? The most prolifically practiced, absolutely the Anastasi without a doubt. Right, any archaeologist who like knows anything about North America, even though it happened elsewhere, definitely the most in the Anasazi lands. Yeah. Well, that what's the one place in the Book of Mormon where they talk about eating each other? At it's the like end. the final right. battle, like right. the desolation, right? right. Anyway, cool. It, and and there's one thing after another. Like I'll, I'll give one other example of thing that I think is like an obvious correlation, but they no one would ever believe it because of the radiocarbon dating and the, the narrow neck. So the other one is Teotihuacan, right? Like Teotihuacan is believed to be like this like uh, like the largest pre-planned city basically in the world uh, at the time, right? And I mean maybe that's going a little too far, but definitely in the Mar- in the Americas it is like it's it's it is the center. It is the hegemon of the entire continent. Like it's influence is definitely stretching from northern Mexico all the way into the Mayan lands. Like they are they are the continental hegemon. And, and not only that, the way that they build the city is like it, they pre-plan it and they bring in all these different cultures and create like a Zapotec center and a, a um, West tech center. And anyway, there's all these different cultures a mixed center that have their own kind of like barrios in the, in the city. And it's like, it's like they planned the city before they built it and then it just pops up overnight really huge. And the timing, like, cause this happened pretty to- close to the time of Christ the timing matches surprisingly well with what it says in the Book of Mormon about Laconius, right? Because Laconius, when the Ganaean robbers are getting to be such a huge problem in Zarahemla, he said, well, we're gonna get all of the Nephite people from all the Nephite lands and we're gonna gather them to the land of Zarahemla mm-hmm. and the land of and to the land of Bountiful a little bit, mm-hmm. and we're all gonna be centralized and then um, abandon all the other lands. And so I believe that Teotihuacan was built by Laconius when he gathered everybody to, in defense for those seven years from the Ganyan robbers. I think he built Teotihuacan. That's awesome. And, and that also goes along like because most Book archaeologists, they're I mean they have they have places like Santa Rosa that they say maybe this is Arahimla, but all of their Area Himlas, in my opinion, suck. <laughs> because just like their model in general, they take the whole book and they stick it in these little corners and they try and correlate it with these like tiny, these tiny ruins, right? Yeah. Well it does not I mean, doesn't I, I, maybe I'm off base here, but I think that a generalized reading from pretty much anyone who read the book of Mormon for the first time would get the idea that Zara Hemlo is like a massive population center. That's the idea I get. Yeah. Right. But right. it's like, like, like it's, if you're going to try and find it, you should be finding a huge ruin. And it should be like the preeminent ruin, even if it's small, it's bigger than everything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Except for maybe the city of Nephi like the the idea that the Book of Mormon tries to put apart, I put forth, I think, is that Zarahemla is the preeminent city. It's not some tiny little city with these massive other empires surrounding it. It is the preeminent city. Yeah. So that that's another thing. Like, if you're going to ask an archaeologist what is the most preeminent city in all of Mesoamerica in all of prehistory, it's Teotihuacan, without a doubt, right? And right behind it, especially even in the in the writings of like all the Aztec like right behind it would probably be like Cholula which is just to the south to it right those Mexican highland cultures they were like they were the political hegemons they were the population centers okay so anyway that's my Zarahemla like Cholula and and Teotihuacan but no no Book of Mormon scholar would ever say that because like well we know Zarahemla's south of the narrow neck, so then where's the narrow neck yeah right and so then that gets into like a whole nother can of worms that would take me another 40 minutes to explain. But Anyway, I have I have like a, a book I'm writing, so I'll, I'll kind of get into that and kind of okay, cool. some other time because there's so many awesome, like so many amazing correlations. The City of Nephi the correlation is just anyway, every one of them I think are like, wow, like everything the Book of Mormon says is like right there obviously in the archaeology. Like not just not just there it is like the most it's like the main story in archaeology you know sorry
0: anyway no you're good that's cool so so your so your big thing is kind of like the dating the dating is more um, how do I want to say it like the way that archaeologists look at it today at least people in the church who are trying to correlate places they just dismiss a lot of the things that you would look at because of your theory on the, on the dating and the radiocarbon stuff. Is that right? Right. Right.
1: And I, and I kind of offer, I offer two different theories, right? Because on one hand I would say, well, maybe radiocarbon dating is wrong, but we also, I think need in all fairness, like need to consider that maybe the Book of Mormon is wrong. Right. And, I, I don't, I know there's a lot of people who kind of hold scripture so sacrosanct that they don't think that there's like errors in it. I mean, the book itself is like, Hey, if there's errors, they're the errors of men. Like we know that we made mistakes. So right. don't just yeah. don't, don't believe this, don't disbelieve the book just cause there's errors of men. I think that these men were like highly prone to error, just like the Egyptian records like and, and even the Israeli records, like a lot of ancient records. People were horrible at geographies. Like Strabo's Geography, I mean, it sucks. I mean, those guys did not understand, like a, a seven-year-old with Google Earth knows geography better than the preeminent scholars of the ancient world. Right? Because <laughs> yeah, how could they? How could they know what continental shorelines looked like? The only places they knew is they knew, like, oh, this city's north, this city's east, and it's this many days that way. Yeah. They didn't know what the shoreline looked like. And when they're right. trying to drive them, I mean, what, they walk the shoreline and try and, like, draw what it looks like? <laughs> And that's what I think happened with the Narrow Neck, right? They thought that there was Narrow Neck in, in Northern Mexico where the huge Chihuahuan desert is. No one went there, there's no ruins, there's nothing. It's uninhabited, uninhabitable, no one ever went there. There's just two small travel corridors along either side, right? Two narrow passages, right? About a day and a half's journey. I think that those narrow passages ways are the only place that anyone ever went and they thought that the Sierra Madre Occidental and the Sierra Madre Oriental, these two mountain ranges along those passages, were the same mountain range. And so they believed just, and I have some maps of early um, cartographers, Spanish, right? People who, from Spain and Italy, they thought the same thing. They draw a map and they show like this narrow neck in northern Mexico that doesn't exist, oh, right? Why? Cool. Because they, they didn't have Google Earth. Right. And so I think they thought the narrow neck of land was there right, but they just, they didn't quite get geography. But also I think that their timelines, like when you look at the king lists in, in um, Egypt, they, none of them agree, none of them, right? And so modern archeologists try and like piece them together and then use the archeology span to piece them together too. The fact is like, they all the time were like taking kings and like putting things that should have been side by side and put them on top of each other. So this king that was actually, a, this one ruled in Southern Egypt, this one in Northern Egypt, they ruled at the same time but we're going to put them like one after another and then yeah. and the next chronologer is going to come and like put them the other way and so i think that we need to to admit the possibility that maybe the book of mormon is doing that too okay and maybe it's possible that especially fourth nephi where we think that there was like only 400 years mm-hmm. that maybe they're trying to make it fit with the narrative because of the prophecy of, of samuel and some of these guys they're and, and nephi they're trying to make it fit with the narrative and they think that what was actually a thousand years was only 400 years oh. and, and what and so they put that there's only like three people but it, there was actually like tons of kings they're cutting out there right i think i think we should accept that as a possibility yeah so maybe have one camp of people who are like no we think the book of mormon's right and archaeology is wrong and then maybe have another camp of people to say like no we think archaeology is right and the book of mormon um, chronology is actually
0: wrong yeah that's really interesting so, like, some of those cultures that you said, like, disappeared around 1000 or 1200 AD, do you think that could be, like, the Book of Mormons 450 AD? Is that kind of right. what you're saying?
1: Right, yeah. So, in my okay. book, that, that is one of my theories. And there's, there's there's, really some crazy evidence for that. Like, some yeah. really strong evidence. That's cool. Because right? there is a Quetzalcoatl figure that's in the annals. And um, I can't remember which of the whether it's Duran or the other chronological chrono, oh, chronographer or whatever anyway he he has there being like a Quetzalcoatl that lived a thousand A.D. or something like that anyway I have, I have my book in it and I can't pull the dates out of my mind but um, like 400 years before that we find like really strong evidence of a major um, asteroid impact in the Pacific like in Japan
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they know that it it like distorted radiocarbon dates and it it hit like a, 750 AD or something, radiocarbon years, um, right? And then, like, 400 years later, you've got um, the radiocarbon dates showing all the, all like, Teatua con the Anasazi, and the Koakia cultures all collapsing within, like, a couple hundred years. So so maybe, anyway, so maybe that asteroid impact really did cause this huge destruction, right? And, and so they're like mixing the time of Christ destructions with this asteroid impact. Uh, anyway, I've, I've got like some really cool stuff on that. Yeah, but um, cool. I don't know if I have time to really go through all that. But the book, the book will kind of go through that, but it's not good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't really care about any of this stuff right now. It's going to be <laughs> 10 years before I really turn my attention to it
0: well that's cool I'm excited for it that sounds awesome so cool well yeah thanks for sharing that's cool I uh, I don't really have I don't know if the word what the word is but I'm kind of agnostic when it comes to Book of Mormon geography like I I don't know I'm just interested to hear all the theories because I like you said I've never really heard one yet that kind of hits everything for me but I don't look into it that much either so right but that's cool. That's awesome. Um,
1: Let me see real quick. I I'll show just one, just, I mean, i will just touch on this because if you haven't seen it or anyone watching this Yeah. um, Cares. So anyway, I like, I've spent like hundreds and hundreds of hours, like way too much of my life (laughs) looking at Book of Mormon geography. Uh Uh, Let me, let me share my screen real quick. Yeah. Just, uh, I can show, okay, so you see this right here? Anyway, so I have an article, like I have an internal um, geography that I've made. Okay. And it matches like surprisingly well with a lot of the other internal geographies. Like the internal geography of the book is pretty cohesive and kind of unmistakable. Right. But maybe I just, maybe save this for another time. But like, so if you go through here, like I have every single city, right? And Mm -hmm. like, so you can see that you see cities here, Morianton, Omner, Gideon, Trishan, Helam. And I go through every single scripture that mentions those cities of pretty much every city in the Book of Mormon that's significant. Yeah. And then I go through and and talk, like write notes on exactly what the relationship significance of that city is. Right, with Zarahemla, the River Sidon. Um, That's awesome. And this is why like, so, I think if you go through my reasoning, like a lot of people miss some of the most significant geographic relationships that need to be in any model. Mm -hmm. And and what the the most significant one is, right? They're always focused on the narrow neck because it's so obvious. Right. In my mind, it's like, well, that they actually didn't understand the narrow neck, like I already explained, right? They've got because Moroni thought there was a narrow neck in North Mexico, but it wasn't. Yeah. What he did understand really well was the relationship of the border between the land of Zarahemla and the land of Nephi, right? And there's so much time spent on that border because the border is talked about in Alma 21st, right? Or what is it, mm-hmm. 23? Um, So, So it, it's explained that there's like a narrow strip of wilderness that is the border. And it yeah. even explains that the river Sidon, right? There's a, a line in there that says, in the river Sidon, running from east to west, right? And a lot of people suppose that's like, oh, well maybe that's just like talking about the narrow neck or the narrow wilderness again. But I think it's pretty clear that it talks about the riverside and running from east to west, that it was the border between the land of Nephi and the land of Zarahemla. But when Moroni came into power, right? Then the Lamanites had then like surrounded the land of Nephi, both on the East Sea and the West Sea. And so he creates a new border, right? And in Alma 57 through 13, he explains that really clear right. moroni creates a new border and he creates all these new cities to fortify these garrison cities to fortify that border and then all the chapters of alma from like you know 40 to to the end of the to 60 are wars fought over those garrison cities mm. that were created to guard the new border because the lamanites are kind of pissed right maybe maybe rightly so like moroni stole their land he's like but he, he felt it was there i think he felt it was their territorial land anyway And it just wasn't very smart to be surrounded by your enemy. So anyway, he created a new border, and he made it straight coast to coast. And it goes all the way from the East Sea to the West Sea. Right? And then you see you've got battle over like Antipyra and Kuminai, these are in Manti. And then there's kind of a a reference that everyone else skips over that says like Manti is close to Nephiha and Moroni is on the sea. So it, it gives like this line of cities. And nobody, like that has to be in any model that you make. But it's super problematic in any of the Mesoamerican models like to make those fit into the into the models that put the isthmus of tijuana topec as the naranac land it's it's difficult there's there's some good models down there and i'm not gonna say that there aren't one or two that like are plausible but but they they don't fit really well with what's explained of those cities and and maybe we could do a different I'm gonna do my own videos, I guess, at some point where I really go through every single verse and explain that relationship that needs to exist. And it's a relationship that I think all people who have made internal models get right, but a relationship that everyone who tries to put it down in um, Southern Mexico and Guatemala get wrong.
0: Yeah, they just can't match it up with anything in their model. Yeah, Yeah.
1: because the the Yucatan Peninsula kind of like ruins it. Right and the whole north east southwest sea you know and having to like trade them all and make the east north and south and north,
0: and yeah yeah that's cool yeah we could you know i'd love to see more on that but is that is that website that you showed is that available on your website yeah yeah okay
1: cool yeah it's one of the main pages i think it's just called like internal model um of the book of mormon awesome it's bit. Yeah, I mean, it's like 20 pages long, so it's a good one to go through for. And I try to be kind of like objective in that, in my in my first part of it, and not like try to bend it toward any model, make a truly an internal model, and then in my discussion, kind of maybe try to explain it to a
0: model. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> well, that's cool. I didn't know much about your Book of Mormon models. Uh, thanks for sharing that. The uh, the website, though, I'd love to hear more about your website mormon universalism and some of the things you wrote on there like uh you have stuff about uh theophanies of other people not just joseph smith but other people and you've got like channeled texts and other prophets and stuff i'd love to talk about some of that stuff if you can
1: yeah like every one of those topics is like its own (laughs) own thing yeah but if i was if i was going to try to um summarize, like some of my main points um, in my ideas of universalism. So, um, okay, so my my first one would be like the whole basis of this of the site, like this idea of universalism is that I think that universalism is completely contrasted with fundamentalism, right? And I mean, these are loose terms, but the way I'm going to use them and define them like a fundamentalist religion, believes it's the bomb. It's steeped in pride. Right. Right. It thinks that it is like God's gift to earth and God's mouthpiece on earth. Right. Right. Uh, and I, and most religions, like lots of religions believe that, right? Like there's just a ton of religions on earth that all think that they are the true church, right? I mean, Catholic church has been doing it for millennia. They think they're the only true church, right? Yeah. And the Protestants kind of like, no, we are. And so so I think, and I think it's pretty typical for a young church to come out and be like, hey, we are the only true church and we are the highest light. Okay, so my my thought with universalism, right, though, is that I think that as people like expand and mature and get older, I think it's just pretty normal for an older person to be to like start looking at all the different churches and kind of like come in contact with pluralism and be like, wait, well, they all, they all have their own teachings. And they all think they're right. They can't all be right, right? Mm-hmm. So then is it possible that none of them are right? And a lot of people come to that conclusion, right? Is yeah. it possible that they're all wrong? I think that's kind of universalism. Um, and it's really what I'm teaching. So my premise is that the only true church that's, t- that's spoken of in Mormon scripture, like in DNC 130, is the spiritual church in heaven? Like there is a church, and church might be like a weird word to use, but it's what the scriptures use. Um, it's a spiritual organization that exists in heaven, right? The the church of the firstborn talked about in Hebrews and stuff. It is, it's a church in heaven, and basically what it is it? It is, is it's the realm in heaven where all the most selfless, amazing people who've lived go. Right. And the thing that governs the hierarchies of heaven has nothing to do with what religion you belong to, it has everything to do with your righteousness. Right. Yeah. Like Abraham wasn't like chosen and, he, and neither were any of the prophets because of the religion they belonged to. It was because they lived a certain way. They had a certain mindset that was aligned with, with the most impressive people who've ever lived. Right. And so they occupy this higher echelon of heaven. And so, and so universalism and, and the idea of Mormon Reformation, right, is that an individual and a church needs to come to that maturity to where they stop thinking they are the highest light and that they have all the truth and that they have the highest truth and instead realize, no, we're all wrong. Like, the truth is in God. Right, God has the truth. These higher beings in heaven, they have the truth, and they try to teach it to people on earth, but like almost immediately when they teach it, we corrupt it. Mm -hmm. We ruin the truth, always. Israel did it. Mormonism has done it. Like, I, I think Mormon scripture is pretty awesome, but I think we've corrupted it in so many ways. And most of those ways revolve around pride, revolve around us thinking that we are the biggest and best and greatest. And I think it's kind of largely responsible for a lot of the apostasy and leaving the church that's happened, like in the, especially in the last couple of decades. Like so many people are themselves maturing into pluralism and universalism and realizing, hey, there's so much truth in all religions, and we don't seem that much better. I mean, maybe we are in some ways, but in a lot of ways, they might be better. Are we really that much better? And so then they're like, well, we say we are, but I don't see that. I don't see us being so much better. And so I'm just gonna leave religion in general because I think it's all bull hooky, right? I, yeah. I, don't, I don't follow that. I think that religion, is, can be amazing and it is amazing in so many people's lives. We shouldn't abandon it. But but we should recognize the pride that's inherent in fundamentalist beliefs, right? The beliefs that like over-literalize scripture and always put ourselves like at the pinnacle and at the height and being so amazing and saying that our leaders, are the only ones that God talks to. And and I think that there's just so much evidence that destroys that model now as soon as the internet came around you you can't even withhold that model like the fundamentalist model can only exist in a vacuum as soon as you get the internet and you find out it's like oh really there was a guy in china hong shishuan who almost the exact same time that joe smith had his version of vision this guy had a first vision too and just like joe smith saw two beings of light he saw two beings of light and he started a church called the heavenly kingdom just like Mormonism within the same decade. And he he introduced polygamy in it and communism, right? Socialism within his model. Like his model is so much like what came to Joseph Smith. And now only that, then the government like went to war with him and, and it started the Taiping Rebellion, right? It killed like 30 million people. It's like one of the biggest wars of that era of Chinese history. Mm-hmm. And it's so similar to the story of Joseph Smith that then you have to be like, whoa, what the heck? Like when I when I started reading about that guy, it blew my mind. Yeah and and same with the bob right and uh like uh the, the high faith like start reading about his theophany and him like having god come and introduce all this new scripture and all the reforms and it's so similar like there's so many parts of it that are so similar to to Mormonism. Uh, and even even the millerite movement right like so many things that are so similar to joe smith that like it's easy to be like whoa i mean one of two things had to be going on here either one these guys were all talking to each other or reading the same material which i think is a little unlikely when it comes to china and joe smith right or they are like they're part of a bigger thing yeah that maybe there is like and i I have theories on this that that come from some pretty awesome channel text that i talked about right and that goes along with some of the other stuff that i was talking about these gravities waves that emanate out from the middle of the galaxy like when we hit these the times and seasons, right? We hit the ends of these times that these like prophetic type people, even Hindus, like have these different times instead of the Mayan calendar. These these times correlate with these like I'll call them gravity waves. They could be any kind of like really strong electromagnetic wave, but they 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 bend space time. Um, this is kind of according to OASpi really, and I think it's an awesome theory. But so they bend space time, and so as our solar system passes through these waves, the dimensions like close in on each other. And so suddenly heaven and earth, we're going to call it heaven and earth, but I'm going to say it's actually like heaven is just another dimension. When we die, we go to another dimension, right? Mm-hmm. Those dimensions suddenly come closer to each other. So communication through the dimensions is possible. And so when we hit one of those, the ends of these times, right? Um, heaven and earth come closer together uh, because time has worked, And so suddenly people start having all these spiritual experiences and like everyone's seeing angels, not just Joseph Smith. Like Ellen White is seeing angels. Like everybody is seeing angels. Everybody is like having revelations. Why, like why, why the second great awakening did suddenly you get so many religionists, not just in New England, but also in Iran and in China. Why were they all having these amazing like religious experiences? Because space time was like fluxing. And so heaven and earth came closer together and so suddenly they get all this inspiration from these higher heavens and they, all these religions spring up, right? And those religions are full of really very similar doctrines. Um, so then universalism again, right? It's like, we shouldn't think that we're the bomb, that yeah. we're the highest heaven because everybody channels God um, according to their their own ability to see God. Yeah. Okay, like, and, and it, this is a big... I don't know if I want to get into this, but I think that visions like Joseph seeing God. No, I'm not going to get into this. Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to go there. But I'll I'll just go into a couple because I have my first four articles that I think are the biggest aspects of Mormonism that need to be reformed. Right. So all all revolving around universalism. First, we need to realize that the only true church is a church in heaven. Okay, it's not it's not a church on earth. Okay, at church on earth is only as true as we can align ourselves to the heavenly church. Yeah. And when God said in, in 130, 1:30, you know, that, that if you are worthy, that you um, that you might be, how does how does it put it? I gotta read it and not picture not it. Um, the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, with which I, the Lord, um, am pleased, speaking collectively and not individually. How's the
0: first part of that go? I don't remember. <laughs> okay,
1: it says, and, and also those, this is 130, also those to whom these commandments were given might have power to lay the foundation of this church to bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking to the church collectively and not individually. Like I have a whole article written on that because that's the only scripture that even like really comes remotely close to suggesting we're the only true church. But I think that we totally misunderstood it. It's not saying it's not saying you, the Mormon Church. It never says you, the Mormon Church, and your leaders are the only true church upon the face of the earth. He says that you might have power to lay the foundation of the church, bringing it out of obscurity and out of darkness. Right, and so it's it's basically saying like the church, the true church, is in heaven. But if you guys are worthy, right, then you can basically channel the truth from that church and become the true church yourselves because any organization that gets the truth of the true church right the only true church which exists in heaven any any organization that gets those revelations that gets that truth that channels it through your prophets and lives it becomes part of the true church Mm. but only if you're worthy right it's not it's not like this endowment that we're just going to call you true, no matter whether you're good or bad, no matter what kind of crap you interpret out of the scriptures we give you as higher beings, you know, Mm. like if you align with the true church, you become part of the true church, but that includes every religion, like the seven day Adventists that like any of them, if they're aligning with the revelations that are coming from the true church, then they become part of the true church, but they can't call themselves the true church because the only true church is the church in heaven. Right. And I, and I think dnc 10 makes that like pretty clear but i mean I, like i said I'll, I'll have my own article on that because there's so many amazing scriptures um that that i think we just we've just missed mm-hmm. we just ignored them we like we teach lesson after lesson on these fundamentalist scriptures that like sue their own pride <laughs> Yeah. right and we and we gloss over things like like what dNC 10 uh, 67 where he's like behold this is my doctrine whoever repenteth and cometh unto me the same is my church wherefore whosoever declareth more or less than this the same is not of me but is against me therefore is not of my church it's like you don't ever hear that heard preached in, in church heck no you know? we want we want to talk about dnc 130 we want to forget about DNC ten, 50, you know, sixty seven, where he says that anyone who repents and is coming to Christ is part of his true church, is yeah. his church, you know, and right. anyone who teaches more or less than that is not part of the true church. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So, the the main I like, I think of DNC seventy six, um, because whether we believe it or not, like that's universalism, right? Everyone's getting saved. Like everyone's going to the telestial or the terrestrial or celestial. And those, that's, it's all heaven, no matter which one it is, you know? And so I think we don't, I don't think we typically as LDS, we don't typically think of us as being universalists, but I, I think we are really, we just don't realize it.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the very least we're more universalist than pretty much any other religion, Christian religion. Yeah, mainstream uh, religion because of our belief in the afterlife and that, that we're doing everybody's temple work and they're all going to be saved. Yeah. 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 And we have like we have such amazing scriptures in our canon that once again, we don't we don't focus on and we hardly ever read. But like, so here here's a great example. Um, OK, two scriptures that you'll rarely ever hear in church, but that are so universalist and so beautiful. Like really, Second um, 25, Nephi 9, 25 and 26, and Mosiah 15, 23 and 25. Uh, oh yeah, and then the other one, like Moroni uh, 8, 20. Okay, so check check this out, okay? So 2 Nephi 9, 26 says, for the, aton- the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who have not the law given to them, that they are delivered from that awful monster of death and hell, right? Okay, so listen like really carefully. The atonement satisfies the demands of justice on all those who have not the law given to them. Anyone without the law is saved. Okay. <laughs> and, and maybe, and maybe we're maybe you don't believe that one. And so then let's go on to Mosiah 15, 24. And these are those who have part in the first resurrection. And these are they, right? The first resurrection is like when the celestial spirits come forth these are they who have part in first resurrection these are they that have died before christ came in their ignorance not having salvation declared unto them and thus the lord brings about the restoration of these that they may have part in first resurrection or have eternal life being redeemed by the lord right anyone not having salvation declared unto them comes forth in the first resurrection like that's pretty big yeah. and in case that one's like not enough then you have got oh where is it um okay moroni 8 22 says for behold that all little children are alive in christ and also all they that are without the law for the power of redemption cometh unto all them that have no law wherefore he that is not wherefore he is not condemned for he that is under no, for he that is under no condemnation cannot repent for unto such baptism availeth nothing right so, i mean that's huge it says children as well as all they that are without the law are yeah. being aimed. like that's huge like what yeah. <laughs> That's full-on cool awesome. universalism like we're saying there and anyway there's a lot more to that if you like read through it i have, I have an article on that yeah. and, and that article is huge too because it makes the other assertion that, like this with like most norms but no way but i think i prove it pretty clearly we we like to believe that the three degrees of glory are um, physical resurrections right i say read dnc 76 carefully and you'll find really clearly that the three degrees of glory are primarily the spirit world the two left right? because we always teach like as missionaries we all did this right we believe we teach the spirit world as paradise and prison yeah. because if we learn an alma and then you're resurrected physically into these three other worlds that are celestial, terrestrial, and celestial. I say, no way. Like, read read the scripture. It's totally clear. All of DNC 76 is, is it is expanding what was already taught in Him. And it's saying, no, it's not just paradise in prison. There's not just two degrees. There's actually three degrees within the spirit world. Celestial, terrestrial, and celestial in the spirit world. And that those glories, right, they match a state of being, right? So. Yeah. You're going to go in, <clears throat> there's anyway, there's so much to this. Holy cow, like, like I guess this would be a whole other hour to really go through it. And, and why it's important that he makes three degrees of glory, because it's, it's more universalist again. It's really awesome. Um, the and I think that, that kind of why he does three degrees of glory, why he takes paradise in prison, which is already like a Catholic belief, right? Mm. And he throws in a third degree that's kind of like purgatory, and kind of like the Catholic purgatory. So there's three degrees, but those glories correspond with glories that the earth has or will attain in its own progression. So it's dualistic, right? And that's where the confusion comes in. Even though DN76, 76, DNC 76 makes it pretty clear that it is talking about spirits, not about resurrected beings, spirits. It says these are spirits in the verse. Like you read my article, totally clear. These are spirits. Um so but those glories correspond to what the earth will be as it progresses. So right now the earth is, is abiding in a celestial glory. Mm-hmm. And so spirits who are in the earth right now are, and maybe we talked about this before you got my, my reincarnation article, right? So yeah. everyone who's alive right now is typically dying and going to this celestial kingdom of the spirit world and then coming back to earth, right? And, that, and, it, and earth is hell essentially. And that is hell. So the, the Hindu concept of samsara, this wheel of being stuck in the system where you're going to heaven and coming back, right? Because, what does it say? It's like that they may, you know, go with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and enter the kingdom of God to go no more out. Yeah. Right. And there's like three different scriptures like that. We're, we're we are trying as Christians, we are trying to exit the wheel of samsara, this reincarnative um, cycle of going to the celestial kingdom and then back to earth, celestial kingdom and back to earth, like that's hell. We yeah. want to exit that and enter a higher kingdom of the spirit world, where we don't have to keep falling back to earth, right? We can, if we can attain the terrestrial or the celestial glory, we don't have to come back to earth until the earth itself has reached a glory equal to that level that we attained. Because at one point, the earth is gonna become terrestrial, right? so we've been telestial like forever we've been and and these are arbitrary terms and so we'd have to get into the science of like what that actually means it's just a level of energy and it has to do with where we are in the the galaxy in our orbit but like so we've been telestial and at some point though the earth itself like we are starting to get into a terrestrial glory right now like with the industrial revolution things change suddenly earth is a lot better place than it was a thousand years ago right With so much technology and it's going to be way better in another, you know, 500 years, it's going to be a different place. So it enters basically a terrestrial glory, the Earth itself, where we're going to have so much technology, and we're going to be have awesome spacecraft and just amazing things. And we've already got all these amazing computers, right? So that now someone might have died at the time of Christ, but if they were worthy to reach a terrestrial glory, then they're now going to be reincarnated when the Earth catches up to their level of glory. Their level of intelligence and spiritual maturity right and, and at some point the earth itself will actually become celestial right and that's that's far in the future like there's anyway there's lots of channel texts that explain these ideas um but anyway I won't, I won't go into them but it's kind of how they dawned on me and i was like well our, this is what our, our scriptures are actually teaching our scriptures teach this but we don't recognize that our scriptures teach this because we interpret our scriptures well. But once you read the channel text, you're like, whoa, it's totally what scriptures teach. But at one point, our you know, our Earth is gonna be celestial and it's gonna be like into a ball of fire and it's gonna be like um, some of the other channel texts that talk about it, it's like beyond our description. Like we will become what some what some call a social memory complex where basically all humans become so connected that we're almost like one consciousness. And and that Earth will have already by that time be like we call it trans, um transfigured but i think it's dimension shifted like we're gonna be but that's I get, when i use terms like that i'm totally speculating and i, I always make an distinction between when i'm speculating and something like i really believe but so the earth though will i believe be in a far higher dimension uh life on earth will be way different than what it is right now some of the texts talk about it's like we won't even really have physical bodies it'll be it'll be a different type of body and will be like one mind essentially. Um, But then, so if somebody who lived at the time of Christ was able to attain a celestial glory in the spirit world, they lived in that metaphysical realm, this timeless metaphysical realm that is what we call the spirit realm. Um, They live there until the earth attains their glory and they won't come back to earth until then does that make sense yeah so then so then the earth really does become like telestial terrestrial and celestial and we do really get physically resurrected which is actually usually being reborn um, into into the earth but dnc 76 is not referring to that it's other scriptures referring to that dnc 76 when it talks about three degrees of glory is talking about the spirit world which i would i I prefer to call the metaphysical realm of this where people go when they die like it's a the realm of consciousness probably that's,
0: that's so interesting yeah that's cool so do you think because i was born i mean i know you're not judging me but like because i was born into this telestial world do you think it's because i wasn't a great person like in a previous life kind of thing or well
1: that some of the, the text that i like this channel text that that kind of describes this. Um, The way that it would say it like is that we're all we're all pretty much celestial but one of them it's kind of crazy in and of itself but it refers to something as wanderers so it says that there are a lot of wanderers especially coming around the time of harvest and what harvest is is harvest is like when our solar system is getting close to one of these um gravity waves or whatever kind of wave it is that's coming out it's bending space time Mm-hmm. right those waves are going to make heaven and earth come closer but they're also going to make it so that people in the spirit realms can actually jump up levels okay. and, and then people on earth during those times can also jump up a level uh, and so they're harvested to a higher level like from celestial terrestrial terrestrial celestial And so tons of helpers or wanderers incarnate during those times and we're coming upon one like within the next 300 years and so there's tons of wanderers on this planet which are instead of celestial spirits they can be terrestrial or celestial spirits and and that belief is kind of important because what it is, is is like it says but they're all veiled like everyone's everyone goes through the veil even a celestial spirit comes through the veil and only a very powerful spirits can penetrate that veil like really mystic people who are like adepts can like penetrate it and know know their true nature so you can't judge yourself or others kind of like it's saying that we entertain angels unaware. you never know, like your neighbor, you can't be like, oh, he's a lowly spirit. Like for all you know, your your autistic son could be like a wanderer. Because what it says is like during harvest, a lot of these wanderers incarnate just to bring up the, the earth's vibration in general. Like just their presence on earth in, incarnated helps the earth to become better. Wow, that's cool. And higher. And so then we can't, we shouldn't ever judge ourselves or others and and you could always tell, I think, because everyone, everyone always is like, like any like spiritual person I is going to be like, yeah, I'm definitely a wonder, right? I'm I'm definitely like a six density celestial spirit, right? <laughs> so whenever it, whenever we get someone who's like who says that, then I always be like, yeah, not. <laughs>
0: no, you're
1: not. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Like if you were you would you wouldn't think that you were like yeah have some humility i think that the important thing is you don't judge others and you don't judge yourself yeah unless you have had the heavens open to you and you have literally like seen across dimensions and seen your true nature which i think is like so rare um like don't judge yourself and don't judge others
0: so that makes me think of something joseph smith said um he said something like, if I were to tell you who I really were, who I really am, like you wouldn't believe me or you would try to kill me or something like that. Right. To that right. effect. Do you right. think that was kind of like, like he's one of those veiled wanderers and he kind of saw his true nature and that's what he was referring to. Do you think that? Right, right.
1: He said, if you knew what I knew. But yeah. but I I agree with that. So like one of the texts when it talks about honors is like how you how you differentiate them. It says that you know, I can't remember the words, but it's basically like that they are radiant beings. And I I think that is a good way to know like how progressed someone is. Like I think a lot of people come to Earth like with disabilities to because they want to learn, you know. And so Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they could be super advanced and not strike you as as being a radiant being. But I think there's a lot of people that they just like radiate light. You know what I mean? Like you love to be around them because not only do they make every like they they just make people feel loved and they make people feel heard. But then not only that, they have so much in them that, that it's like the world just like congregates around them. I think Joseph Smith was one of them, like a dynamic character. Yeah you know and but even him you know in dnc i mean god like the first like 20 chapters of the dnc like there's several places where like whoever he's channeling is saying like you know the lord is saying hey you know what you can fall don't think that you're like above falling like a prophet can fall and if you don't repent you can fall and and one of my beliefs is that the way that Joseph Smith came about polygamy that he did fall right and, and that God took him from the earth because polygamy was a full-on mistake. Even, even, even if polygamy is like kind of a viable like relationship um, arrangement, which I think it is, the way that he introduced it, and the way that it was lived among the early saints with so much manipulation and coercion um, involved in it, that it was a huge mistake. And that because of that, like Joseph Smith was taken before, before it could fall any further into that mistake. And the gotcha. saints will like deal with the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it was all kind of part of the plan too, right? And this this fits into even more channel texts that talk about how they higher beings, like they always reveal religion, they give them time to grow, and and they expect the religion to go and progress and be pretty egocentric in the early stages of its life, and that's that's fine. But anyway, so like I think Joseph Smith was told that you can fall, and that that all radiant people are that way, right? But that he was he's like a radiant being. Like he had like so much in him, and from a super young age, he's like channeling so much stuff. Yeah. Um, and and everyone's drawn to him because he's just got so much light and information, right? And he he builds something so big and so fast, and then maybe it got to his head and didn't know how to deal with it all.
0: So he was
1: taken
0: (laughs) that's awesome um so one of these channel texts that you talk about on your website really piqued my interest the one uh i think it's called the book of ben catherine can you talk about that a little bit and kind of like some of the things that it might be prophesying and some of the implications of that
1: yeah, um, then that's another like full hour
0: or two. <laughs> Sorry, I keep asking you about all these <laughs> full length episode things.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, so, so I, I think I have in my intro to the book of when Catherine. I mean, I, I take all like channel literature with a grain of salt, right? Right. Um, I don't think any of it, it, it I, I even like include in that like book more Dr. Comes. Like I said, I think that channels channel things from heaven they're not given it in words like they have to put it in words it's kind of like dumped on them as information and they have to put it in words and they can like totally distort it. And I I think that really crappy channels like might have 10% of stuff that's actually coming from heaven and 90% of like stuff that's coming out of their own mind. And then uh, on the on the flip side though a really good channel might have 90% real stuff right that's coming from these higher realms of heaven super intelligent beings. And ten percent is coming from online. So then, the Book of Catherine, I think, is is like one of the best channeled texts that I've read uh, ever. Like it's awesome. And i I still hold it a little bit like away, like I'm waiting for some of the things that it said says are gonna happen because it's very specific and predictive in what it says is gonna happen to the Western world and to Israel in particular so if those things happen then everyone should believe it you know what i mean like if israel is attacked by some kind by iran especially by like a, a a group of arab nations which i would suggest would be like iran in coups with syria and russia but if a league of arab nations attacks israel and conquers it like literally takes it over even if it's just even if it's just the Gaza Strip, like, and West Bank, you know. Even if it's just the part of Israel that is Israel, but it was not supposed to be as part of the original pact. But if that is all taken over by Arabs, including East Jerusalem, um, and held by them, like, even after the first three years, we should, everyone, like, who's heard this, <laughs> who's heard the big Ka- the ben Catherine should be like, holy is like this guy is this guy a prophet yeah right you could, it was given in 1996 published in 2006 and there's no like indication and like I say I prophesize it with the pandemic and that's happening right now so that's that's like a check like people should yeah. probably like at least prick in their ears be like oh, I wonder if this thing has if there's something to it but I don't know I have, I have articles that are pretty specific in like pulling out all the because I've read it, like I said, hundreds of times. Um, I know it really well, and so I've tried to pull out all the really predictive aspects of it and make lists, so that you kind of see, like, if those things start happening, like you should pay attention to this book. Yeah. And I've read a lot of channel literature, right, and it is, right. it is awesome. Not probably more than anything, like, like you know how in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a part where, where like the people are like how do we know that you're legit joe smith and he like channels there another revelation And the revelation is like well if anyone thinks they can do better then let them write a revelation and then we'll see if it actually sounds awesome or whether it just sounds like a bunch of baloney right (laughs) and they try and it's like well, yeah Smith is actually pretty good at making things sound legit and biblical well joe smith didn't hold a candle to jacanib and catherine right i mean this book it was given in both Hebrew, because the guy's a Jew, right? It was given in both Hebrew and English. Um, I only have the English version on my site, but, but it reads like it's exactly out of the Old Testament, right? I and mean, you can hardly even differentiate a lot of its language from like Jeremiah and some and, and, and every single verse is a reference to something in the Old Testament, like whoever, well, we know who it, is, right? He's a Jew living in Israel right now. You know how old he is, we know everything. And it's told in the book that he's gonna work miracles and he's gonna raise the dead and do miracles that haven't been seen since Jesus' time, right? So that's the other thing you gotta watch for. Like, you see a news broadcast where everyone's like lauding some crazy prophetic thing happening in Jerusalem and someone's like healing the sick and raising the dead and you'd be like, holy crap, is that Chicano be crap? He's supposed to be 80 degrees, or 80, sorry, 80 years old and it happens But So if that happens, then we can be pretty sure that like it's legit if it doesn't happen then like i mean just dismiss it and throw it in the rubbish heap of history of failed prophecies right but yeah but like i said the thing the thing reads so um so amazingly and so like it references the old testament so seamlessly in so many ways like even better than the doctrine Covenants, that it blows my mind like i don't i I mean, I, I know the scriptures pretty well. I really did when I started to get into that. And I can't even like begin to place the references. There's so many, yeah. right? It's like this guy, this guy had the Old Testament memorized or else it's coming from someone who did. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> how old every, would, how old is, would this guy be right now?
1: Um, I think if I remember right, the age it gave was like 12 years older than me. Like, so that he'd be like um, 56 or something like that. Okay, it, it, has, it has like this section that says, like, like how long have I arrested you from your ancestor, or whatever? And it's like 40 years because I because he was 40 years old when he published the Revelation, which would have been in um, 2006, which was like the year that I found it. Um, and and but then it says, like, well, in social, I turn into Israel. He says it in a way that makes it sound like, well, in another 40 years, I'm gonna call you on the scene. And he says like in thy old age thou shalt serve me and stuff like that so it makes it sound like he's going to be like 80 when when he's called the prophesy and so that would be type, that'd be either 2035 or 2045 oh, okay. 2046 2036 or 2046 depending on whether you're counting the 40 years from the time he received it or the time he published it gotcha and when i like i was like I don't know, it was, like, it was kind of a weird story. Um, like I was really feeling strongly, like all these impressions, I had my own like, kind of crazy metaphysical experiences, but I was feeling was, like really strong impressions, like that there was like a prophet and that there was crazy stuff happening. And for some reason I was like thinking Mongolia, like I kept like thinking like, oh, there's like prophets in Mongolia and Tibet. Um, and then this one night, like it was almost like a voice like in my head like super strong it was like no you know what you're looking in the wrong place and i'm like what and it's like no the prophet's in israel and and this like phrase came into my mind and i like immediately went to the computer and typed that phrase and it popped up like the first reference and so i found this website that it was on um which which was only up for like five years it's been taken down since then so i think i think that my site's like the only place you can find it prophecy in English I'm sure it's probably still available in Hebrew like in Israel or something but yeah. I, I felt like anyway when I when I read it I wasn't quite sure about it but it didn't take like reading it very many t- times before it was like a lot of things with me like it burned in me or right? like I read it and like this is like significant and you might play a part in, in putting this out there um anyway so I, I was really invested in it even though I haven't, I haven't really focused on it, failure, kind of my own stuff. But I, I still like, I'm still of the opinion, well, okay, so I mean, it, it's prophecies are super um, specific and significant. And I think I mentioned this before, Like, so it says that Israel has, has been in captivity to the West for 70 years, right? It's like a puppet state to, to America, like uh-huh. seven years since its inception. And it says that it will yet again be a puppet to the arabs for 70 years so it's gonna have another 70 year captivity and then at the end of that 70 year captivity the temple the third temple will be built and it will be like restored and become a, like a theocratic nation and become like one of the most influential um it, it'll become the new us basically for technology and law and knowledge like god's gonna pour his spirit upon um on israel and it will it will rule the world just like america does right now right but with that prophecy is that america is falling and that we are right now on it gets a 40-year period of like a probation where we have like this 40-year period where he stills the storm and where things are still good for us at the end of that 40-year period the u.s will fall and it will fall hard and we will have just this part is my interpretation so i might be calling it wrong but seems to me that it's talking dualistically and that america will have a 70-year period of captivity just like israel israel will be captive to like the this arab league like some kind of arab coalition maybe saudi arabia and and surrounding countries i don't know but they will basically israel become a puppet to them and during that the us will basically fall into some kind of a socialist um captivity just like russia did Right, just like the USSR, which which the USSR lasted almost exactly 70 years too, which is kind of strangely coincident. But from the Bolshevik revolution to '97 or whenever it was that the um, Kremlin completely fell and the Ruble dissolved and and the USSR, um, you know, dissolved into what like 12 nations. It's the same thing will happen to the, the U.S. Like we will we will have a slow, not a quick revolution, but a slow socialist revolution where we fall into. Um, basically like some type of extreme socialism. So, I mean like communism, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and that will have very few lights, you know, and that and that in the 70-year period or sometime during that, we'll break up too, just like the USSR did. We'll break up into five flowers, it says, So five of the nations And then after our breakup, just like now, you know, a lot of a lot of the ex-Soviet republics are really flowering, right? I and mean, especially the, like, the Baltic regions, Latvia, Lithuania, and, and the, um, the stands right, with all their oil, like they are doing amazingly. Um, same thing is gonna happen with the US. After we break up, um, we will like, well, it says we'll be a garden. And so it almost, it's almost like it, it segues into the Mormon story that it's like, because that's what all of us Mormons believe, right? Like at some point, the US will fall and Zion will rise. Yeah. Well, what what is Zion gonna look like? Well, its capital is gonna be in Independence, Missouri, supposedly, right? But what is this new nation going to look like? Um, it kind of seems to suggest that it's like, yeah, like there's gonna be a nation that comes out of the U.S. out of break of the U.S. that's going to then help rule the world with Israel, and it's gonna be righteous again. Yeah. You know, in the U.S. right now is is like effed up. Right? I mean, we wouldn't know like. No, like Good living, if it like kicked us in the ass, but but the the idea is that after we go through this problem, like that, our social consciousness will awaken and we'll learn once again, like what what is right living and ha- where happiness is, and where we need to have a focus. And, but that we have a lot of hard times before we get there, that we're yeah. going to fall into captivity.
0: Yeah. So if there. I'm just curious, like, does the Book of Ben Catherine talk at all about the Second Coming? Like, would it happen after that seventy years captivity? Like, what do you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, it to- it's pretty okay. So, what it says, <clears throat> um, and and there's another channel text that kind of agrees with it. It basically—I wish I remember the exact wording. But the way that it paints it, in my mind, like I'm pretty sure what it's saying is that it goes off on, it calls it, it, it calls it, it's always talking about Judah and Ephraim, right? And this is another significant thing that makes it fit pretty seamlessly into Mormonism. It's kind of interesting. Like it categorizes Europe and America as Ephraim, like we're labeled Ephraim, right? we already kind of believe that yeah. in the church. And then, and then it labels Israel, and I think it's including the Arabian countries around it, as Judah. So it's chiding Judah and it's chiding Ephraim. And it goes off on Ephraim over and over about our idolatry and how we're always like, that we've, we've created a God of our own imagination. And it, it says something along the lines of it's like, we all think that Jesus is gonna come. And, we, and when Israel gets attacked, like all the Orthodox Christians, they will full on think it's the second coming, right? Like Jerusalem is gonna be under siege from this coalition that I think is probably going to be Iran and Syria and Lebanon, but who knows? So and it'll be taken over and like things like the temple, the 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 I kind of think that the mosque up there is probably going to be bombed. Like it's going to be clear that stuff is going down, and then there's going to be reports of like miracles going on because you're going to have anyway. This is my interpretation, we'll see? If, <laughs> because it's kind of crazy. We'll see if it actually happens, but in my mind i think it's saying the book of ben, that ben catherine the prophet will be working miracles during that time too and so that'll be in the news And so everyone's gonna think it's the second coming like jesus is coming but he's not gonna come instead of him coming and saving jerusalem right like everyone thinks and saving israel israel is going to be taken over and the christian world is going to be reeling from it. they're going to be like what like Jerusalem was just destroyed. And I and I even wonder sometimes that it's talking dualistically because it's often like make, saying about dualism that I think it's like talking about the Vatican and, and Jerusalem in parallel, that maybe the Vatican will be attacked at the same time that that Jerusalem is. I, I don't know, the, maybe just Jerusalem. But at any rate, it basically paints a picture that's like we've created this idol in our minds and it's not true. And everyone's gonna think that Jesus is gonna save Israel and he won't. And instead, they will be taken over for seven years and in seven year captivity. For those full seven years, all Christians are gonna be like, what, like Jesus should have come and saved Jerusalem. But he didn't, instead like, now the Arabs are like ruling the world, like what the heck, the Middle East is like rising as, as a major center and Europe and America are falling, just like Eastern Europe did after World War II, right? Or after World War I. Uh, Western Europe and the U.S. are basically going to fall in the same way the USSR did into, like, captivity, we're going to be like, well, where's Jesus? Like, he was supposed to come, right? But the thing is that our belief in the second coming is wrong. (laughs) We don't get it. And and I'm not even going to go into the details of it, but it's idolatry. Like, we are over-literalizing the scriptures. And when it says that Jesus is gonna stand on the Mount of Olives and one foot here and one foot there and split the mountain asunder, no, that's not literal. It's figurative. And and when Jesus comes, it's it's just like, right, it's exactly, exactly, and it's so it's poetic justice because it's exactly like the Jews. Like we're we're all totally just like the Jews, right? They thought that the Messiah was gonna come and save them from Roman rule, right? And they were so sure and like, oh, they're under bondage. And so here they're just waiting for their Messiah to free them from Israel. And so when Jesus came as like this lowly pauper and did these miracles and didn't free them and instead died on the cross, then they're reeling and being like, what the heck? That can't be our Messiah. He didn't conquer, he didn't save anyone, but yet he did, right? He did, he just wasn't what they expected because they built an idol in their minds. They were just in idolatry. They built God into something they wanted him to be and he wasn't but people who were in tune spiritually right they recognized him
0: yeah
1: he was like he was the messiah so the messiah is coming again right and and ben catherine is in part a messiah right he's not the mean, but he is he is a prophet like he, yeah
0: an like anointed maybe. one
1: okay in in this way of thinking right and i'm always like holding I don't. I don't want anyone to think that it's like I'm like dead set on the truth of this because I always hold everything a little bit aloof and take a little bit with a grain of salt. But this is, this is kind of like my hope, um, and 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 something that kind of anyway it's something I hope. And so I I feel like it, it seems right. The more I think about, it, it seems right. It's seriously, we it's can go down. We're all thinking just like the Jews, that like he's gonna come, and he's gonna save Israel and he's not, that he's gonna do it, he's gonna work miracles in the same way the Jews did. And the people who recognize truth and be like, well, oh, this, guy's, this guy's teaching amazing stuff, he's doing miracles, and even though in the media and everyone dismisses it and hides it, it's like legit. And it's just like what happened last time. The People who recognize it will recognize it. And, but the things that he teaches, and it says this in the Book of MacArthur, as well as the seven prophets that he calls around him, they will form the foundation of like uh, a religion for the coming age, and and the Book of Encatharion is written in such a way that it it doesn't just appeal to Christians; it appeals to Muslims. Like the, the metaphors within it, um, and I wish I knew some a Muslim so I could have been like I could talk over the book with him, because I'm pretty sure that after all this happens, um, what happened to the to the roman world after christ right I and mean, they were all pagans but they were the, the jews rejected the messiah they rejected christianity but paul and the gentiles of rome they converted by the millions right i mean at least by the tens and hundreds of thousands within the ensuing hundreds of years and so i mean it wasn't 400 years before the entire empire basically converted to this new christian religion that the idea that the book in ben catherine seems to push and I think is going to happen is that it's going to appeal to the Muslims right and that the Christians are going to reject it for the most part right but that the Muslims will be as fertile a field as Rome was so that within a few hundred years after this happens there will be millions of Muslims converted to this new and I don't even know what you'd call it because it's like it's a new messianic Judaism I guess the religion that he's pushing it's not it's not Christianity as we know it. It's a different religion. It's kind of like a blend of Judaism with Islamic aspects and with a bunch of Christian aspects. So he's, he's bringing this new religion, just like Christ and, and Peter and Paul brought this new religion and it's gonna convert millions of Muslims. And this religion is going to bind together the entire Middle East. And the Middle East will then become this bastion of civility. Instead of being like this war zone like it currently is, this new religion will transform the whole region to become basically the powerhouse of the coming age. Right, and, and that, that's the message of Mormonism too. So that's, that's another reason why the Book of the Catholic should appeal so much to Mormonism because the, the message of the Book of Mormon and Mormonism is basically a warning to the Gentiles, right? Book of Mormon and 3rd Nephi, and 2nd Nephi, over and over, he's like saying, Gentiles, repent because the end of the age is here. The end of the time of the Gentiles is upon you, and the restoration of Israel is coming, right? So the the age of the Gentiles and the Gentile nations are going to fall, that's prophesied both in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Book of Mormon. And then there's gonna be a restoration of Israel. And who's going to be Israel? Who's gonna be the new um, hegemon of the world? It's gonna be the Jews in Israel, with all the Arab countries around him and it's going to be the Latins in the Americas right so as America falls Mexico will rise and Latin America so the gentiles are on our way down and if we if we don't repent we'll fall into civil war right and be destroyed just like Israel was right I and mean, when Christ came and said hey you know what uh this is your last warning and 40 years after I'm dead your entire country is going to fall into ruin right and they are just like Relax. No way. But it's like it happened, right? Yeah. And and that's that's kind of the Book of Ben Katerin's message. And I think it's the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine Feminist message. Like they're saying, like, look, this is the last, this is your last chance. You've better join and align yourself with restored Israel, which is the Latins and the Muslims. Because the Gentiles are wicked as hell. Like they don't know right from wrong anymore. And they don't know how to get along. Like our political systems are turning ourselves on each other yeah. and and if you don't see it like you're blind Like yeah. war is coming <laughs> a complete dissolution of our of our peace that we've known for 100 years you know at least since the civil war is is like on our doorstep and and people are like so everything's so good e- economically <laughs> we're like Oh, the prosperity, we're, things are gonna be great for forever. But no, like after the end of it, I really believe in this message of the book of After the 40-year probation, which will, I think, end sometime between 2035 and 2045, our economic prosperity will come to an end. And as soon as our economic prosperity comes to an end, just like with the USSR, um our peace will come to an end too. Like there will, there will be um, I, I kind of hope that it won't be like because the book in Catherine, in specific, it says, it says quickly came entropy upon France, so too upon China and Russia, but slowly it'll come unto you, America, as a creeping fog. So that it's suggesting like with the, with the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Re- Revolution and the Chinese Revolution, they we were very um, bloody and full of war, right? But it kind of suggests that with America, it's not going to be like a huge revolution. It's going to be more of a slow thing that happens over you know, like a 20 or 30 year period and not going to be like a, a bloody revolution. But it still will mean um, like the dissolution of our, of what we have known to be America. You know, I mean, we'll lose our freedoms, we'll lose um, our way of life, we'll lose our, our age of plenty. And we're, I think that kind of what we're seeing now with COVID is like a harbinger of things to come, like through which are all the that Russia's been facing forever, for you know, especially after their, revolution like food shortages and uh, economic problems things are probably good for the poor you know i mean the poor profit in russia during, during russian china well i don't know actually that's a broad broad brush but i think the USSR is a good um analog to look at and what america's headed for. Uh, or anyway what 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 the book of the should say has led me to believe the us is the u.s is headed toward
0: yeah yeah i mean i i can totally see something like that happening uh when you were talking about um israel being attacked and conquered and destroyed and christ not coming um it reminded me of a scripture i think it's in dnc somewhere 133 maybe i don't know but it says it's like the people will say, oh, well, Christ is going to delay his coming until the end of the world Right. or something like that, right? Wow. And I can totally, like, I've always wondered about that. Like, why would we think that? And then it makes total sense if something like that happens because we would think that that's when it should happen, but then it doesn't. We're like, well, he's never coming then, you know? Right. And it makes makes perfect sense. Yes. Yeah. So.
1: And I, and I think, like, because there's some of the channel text, talk about that in a couple different ways but it's like so he will come because most of the scriptures when you when it's talking about the second coming it it says that he will come in heaven like you look and it's like you know, he sees and he sees like there's all these metaphors of christ coming in heaven uh-huh. um so i think that he actually will come in the metaphysical realm right but then he will also come on earth just not the way we think, think that he's gonna come. He's just not, he's not gonna come as that marauding hero that vanquishes <laughs> his enemies and and saves the world just like the Jews thought. Instead, he's gonna come like kind of as the Book of Ben Catherine and as this movement, um, like Ben Catherine will be a messiah figure basically, but he'll, he'll be the prophet and, and he'll be carrying the message of the resurrecting side,
0: say so, yeah. Oh, well, that's awesome! Very, very interesting. Um, I started to read it, by the way, from your website. I didn't get very far, but it is very, like you were saying, it's written poetically, like in it's just a way that I could never reproduce. You know, like it, it seems like you were saying from a higher source. Yeah, it's it's impressive. I mean who knows?
1: I always wanna like distance myself from like being too dogmatic or being like, yeah, this way always gonna be. And I mean yeah. you can tell when I get talking that I, I believe certain things, but they're still kind of like I'm still always like, Who knows? I'm not even I'm not gonna sell my house in, in the mountains <laughs> because Book of Catherine says this or that. And I and I always have a hope that no matter that my interpretations are kind of wrong and that things will progress slower and more peacefully than then maybe they could i hope all these transitions happen slow in fact there's a, there's a verse in there that says something like something about the melting snow like the process is like the melting snow That that's how the lord works through slow processes and, and i've thought a lot about that like when you read like the book of revelation or like so many of these prophecies that pack all these events into like one little book And they're just talking about the highlights like you read those into the fundamentalist mind like when you're over over literalizing scripture it's always like oh the world's gonna come to an end but when you think about it if you take those same events and like spread over 100 years like it's not that bad like if you were to take the events just from the last 200 years and put them into like 20 chapters and, and you were to be like and then there's, there's going to be World War One, and it's going to do this, and it's going to do that. And then you have World War II, and this country's going to do this, this country. And then there's going to be nuclear explosions, and they're going to come up with a nuclear bomb, and there'll be Japan, be on fire, and then there's going to be war in the Middle East. Like, you would, you would read that scripture and be like, holy cow, the world is going to end between the years of 1920 and 2000. But it hasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of how scripture is, like these these channels, like these prophets, are channeling um, events of the future and they're just picking out the major events and they kind of like cram them all together. And then the fundamentalist mindset reads those scriptures and not only do they over-literalize the metaphors, they they turn it into something that it's not. They make it all happen at once. And it's like, end of the world! When it's like, if you, if you step back and you look at it with a more like, recognizing the metaphors for what they are and also recognizing the slowness of the processes then you can kind of be like oh yeah even the book of revelation isn't that bad like it's, it's not like all this, and in fact it's probably most of it's already happened you know i mean hailstones falling and destroying the crops of the earth and fire and it's like that's happened it happens all the time mm-hmm. It's just like your perspective in reading it, whether you're trying to make it into this big thing that all happens at once and ends the world, or whether you're like, oh no, it's just talking about like these slow and steady processes that that change the world.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I sure hope that, like you were saying, that things are more peaceful than we sometimes think they will be. Right. So, yeah. Well, I've kept you for two hours now, I think, almost. Um, I I really appreciate you, Lance, for, for talking to me and letting us record this. Um, I guess I'll let you go to bed. It's pretty late. But are yeah. there any last words you have about anything?
1: Probably talked enough.
0: <laughs> well, I loved it. It's awesome. You, you've got tons of knowledge, and your website is amazing. So... Um, I I'll I'll have links and stuff on my show notes, um, so people can check out your stuff. But we might you like you were saying there's a lot of stuff we guess we'll talk about, so we might have to do a part two at some point in the future. Maybe. So we'll we'll stay in touch. Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> okay, man, thank you so much. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's fine.